Welcome to a new episode of the EFCA Theology Podcast, built to help pastors and church leaders stay passionate about the gospel and faithful to the scriptures. How should we think about suffering and evil? More specifically, which biblical truth should we plant deep in our hearts before we find ourselves in the midst of suffering? On this episode of the podcast, we share a lecture by D.A. Carson on this important topic. Rather than giving us pointers on how to endure suffering after it has begun, Dr. Carson provides six foundational pillars that will help us think rightly about suffering before it has come upon us. not every day that I am introduced by my own pastor. <clears throat> and I've thought of leaving Libertyville Free Church, Cross Life as it now is, simply because it's not affording me enough good examples of exegetical fallacies. and So it's delaying the production of the third volume no end. Biblical theological pillars needed to support faithful Christian reflection on suffering and evil. If you live long enough, you will suffer. You will contract cancer or Alzheimer's or both. Or you will be hit by a bus. You may lose your job or your spouse or a child. All you have to do is live long enough. The only alternative is not living long enough, which usually means you are making other people suffer. The forms of suffering are extraordinarily diverse. Wretched diseases like cancer, Huntington's chorea, MS, typhoid, meningitis, babies with severe spina bifida, AIDS, suffering from violence, shootings, war, from nature, so-called, Cat 5 hurricanes, tsunamis, cruelty, torture, the increasing decrepitude of age, the pain of arthritis, the despair of dementia. And every worldview faces questions arising from such suffering. These are not simply Christian questions. They're questions that arise simply because we're human beings. And we live in a world that has a great deal of pain. Well, this is a cheerful way to begin a lecture, isn't it? <laughs> of course, questions regarding suffering and evil are raised by the Bible itself. Many Psalms, for example. Jeremiah, not for nothing, he is labeled the weeping prophet. He's not at all sure that God has dealt with him quite fairly. Job, of course. And Habakkuk, who can understand how God can use a nation to chastise another nation. What he can't understand is how, can, how God can use a more wicked nation to chastise what seems to be a less wicked nation. The book of Revelation with saints under the throne crying, How long, O Lord? Now, I hasten to make clear what I will not attempt to do in this talk. 
I will not offer guidelines as to how to help people going through such suffering, though I'll drop a few hints at the end. That's an important topic, but it's not my topic this afternoon. Rather, I'm going to outline biblical theological pillars needed to support faithful Christian reflection on suffering and evil. That is, this is a kind of prophylactic medicine. This is stuff we should think about before the evil day comes. What theological structures should be a part of our mental architecture before the evil day arrives? So here are six pillars to plant deeply, pillars which together support a God-centered, biblical, biblically-driven framework that Christians need when the inevitable days of suffering dawn. Number one, insights from the beginning of the Bible's storyline. The Bible insists that when God made everything, He made everything good. Indeed, very good. Moreover, the Bible insists that the created order is different from God. God made everything. And it is the doctrine of creation which, in Scripture, establishes our fundamental obligation to God. It establishes the basis of our accountability to God. He made us. He designed us for his own glory, for our good, and he knows what is best. Then we come to the fall. This is crucial regarding our understanding of what is wrong with the world. That is, regarding the nature and origins of suffering and evil. This is not going to be the same as the outlook in philosophical naturalism, where, strictly speaking, it's difficult to speak of evil in any sort of transcendent sense, because at the end of the day, what happens is nothing more than quarks with half-lives in nanoseconds atoms and molecules banging into each other, and the statistical probability of quantum bits of energy doing this as opposed to that. It's different from any sort of ontological dualism. Think the force, which seems to be pretty neutral until you decide to opt on the good side or the dark side of it. Or think sovereign God and sovereign devil, both sovereignties biting against each other and neither absolute. None of that is a biblical frame of reference. From the Bible's perspective, suffering and evil are bound up with our sin and the curse of God that our sin has attracted. Directly or indirectly, things track back to the fall. On the whole, then, the Bible expresses surprise Not that we suffer, but that we are not wiped out. God is a consuming fire. It is of the Lord's mercy that we are not consumed. Romans makes it clear that the fundamental reason why the final judgment has not yet fallen on this damned world is the Lord's forbearance. 
that is entirely alien to the way most of us think about suffering and evil. While we're saying, why me? The Bible is really saying, you really should go to hell. Now, I put it that bluntly because that represents quite a lot of biblical texts. To put it another way, in much of the Bible, what provokes wondering reflection is not human suffering, but God's grace. A remarkable passage that gets this point across in a telling way is Luke 13, 1 to 5. Let me read those verses to you to remind you of their content. Now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this way? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Or those 18 who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now, the two stories back to back are doubly interesting because one kind of suffering comes about because of a wicked man. That is, Pilate has attacked people in their temple worship so that their blood is mixed with the blood of the animals that they are then currently offering. This is the direct result of a wicked man. But the other suffering is what we call an act of nature, or in insurance categories, an act of God. That is, a tower falls, and it kills 18 people. Nobody blew it up. Nobody flew a plane into it. It just happened for whatever reason. And in each case, Jesus is concerned that people do not draw the wrong inference. What he says in both cases is that you must not conclude that those who were killed were more wicked than people who were not killed, who might have been offering sacrifices, who might have been standing under the tower. They were not more wicked. But then he does not go the next step and say, which is what our generation would be more likely to say, they were just as good as the rest of you. What he does is say precisely the opposite. What he says is, you all deserve the same thing. And you will all perish. So these accidents, or this violence, or this suffering, is merely a foretaste of the universal suffering that is brought about on the last day. And we all deserve it. Do you recall the pronouncements of two well-known fundamentalist preachers after 9-11? I refrain from mentioning their names. <clears throat> they achieved instantaneous notoriety for saying that the reason that these towers fell, the reason for this destruction of 3,000 lives, was because of America's carelessness about such matters as abortion and homosexuality and rising marital decay and so forth. Well, there was such a hue and cry that eventually they made public apologies and so forth. But I recall thinking at the time that 
<clears throat> they were almost right and horribly wrong. They were almost right in that they did see that God is a sovereign God even over what we call disasters. What was wrong with what they said was that they were busy condemning other people's sins. Instead of acting like Isaiah saying, I am a man of unclean lips and I live amongst a people of unclean lips. Then they were saying, it's all because of these other people's sins. I don't commit abortion. I don't engage in homosexuality. My marriage is stable. So they were busy condemning other people's sins. Supposing they had said instead, it surely can't be thought too surprising that God would visit us with judgment in his sovereignty, considering our lust nationally for porn. Our endless pursuit of material prosperity. The glorification of greed. Our self-righteousness. Our nurtured bitterness. Supposing it's spoken on those terms. Supposing they had said, don't you understand? This catastrophic judgment does not mean that those who jumped from the 95th floor were more wicked than you. What it means is that unless you repent, you will all, all perish. These are insights from the beginning of the Bible storyline. The first pillar, the accumulated insights from the beginning of the Bible storyline, cannot address all our questions. It is, after all, only one of six pillars. But it does orientate us toward the recognition that in the light of the creation and the fall, we human beings deserve condemnation. And that what is fundamentally surprising in biblical terms is not that there is suffering and evil, but that by God's grace we are not completely condemned. Number two, insights from the end of the Bible's storyline. Eschatology, a new heaven and a new earth to be gained and a hell to be feared. I suspect we don't think enough about either today for all kinds of reasons. One reason we don't think enough about heaven and earth is because we haven't spent enough time on the biblical passages that depict it, which are exceedingly diverse. If, if I were to mention heaven to you, I suspect that many in this room would instantly call to mind one of those nasty little line diagrams in which heaven is represented by somebody wearing a white nightgown, playing a harp, sitting on a puffy cloud. Well, I've got nothing against harps. I don't even have anything against white nightgowns. Although, with my pale skin, they don't do me any service. But on the other hand, it is such a betrayal of what we should be thinking about when we think of the new heaven and the new earth. The home of righteousness. A place of praise. Of the visio dei, the vision of God. They will see my face. A place of work. Hard work. You've been faithful over a few things. I will now make you ruler over many things. In other words, so far all you've done is multiply, you know, f five, uh, five bags of gold. 
You know, you've multiplied $50 million into uh, $100 million. Small potatoes. Now I'm going to give you a real job, God says. There's so many ways of thinking what the new heaven and the new earth will be like. Negatively, no more death, no more decay, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more jealousy, no more hate, no more lust, no more war, no more fear, no more crying. And positively, loving one another as we love ourselves and God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. And hell. Regularly displayed as a place of torment. Not something you can easily excise from the Bible when the one who speaks most about it is the Lord Jesus himself. Read the end of Revelation 20 if you want to be convinced that there is conscious, ongoing, eternal torment. Even if Luke 12 makes it clear that some are beaten with more stripes and some with fewer stripes. Now what do we learn from all of this? There is no utopia here. We're entering into the silly political season again. And everybody is touting their ideas, presenting them in such a way as to suggest, provided you follow my policies, we will have peace on earth, justice in the country, national prosperity, the rising tide will lift all boats, there will be justice and equitability, and so on and so on and so on. Well, I'm not suggesting for a moment Christians shouldn't enter into politics, but Christians who enter into politics should never for a moment give the false impression that if we follow their policies, that utopia will thereby be introduced. Clearly, some policies are better than others. Some politics are better than others. But we are slow to learn that there is no utopia here. In 1989, Francis Fukuyama wrote an essay called The End of History turned it into a book in 1992. And his argument was quite simple. With the fall of the Berlin Wall and the demise of the USSR empire, therefore, he was saying, history as we know it is really coming to an end. History is marked by major conflicts, political conflagrations, wars. Um, And now if one of the big players has been removed, uh, China, he sort of had to include in a footnote somewhere, If one of the big players has been removed, then there may be skirmishes and so forth, small-level conflicts for the next 300 years or so. But at the end of the day, history will no longer be about uh, conflict and war because gradually democracy will take over and there will be peace. Does anybody think that he's got it right today? I remember when I read the book, I thought to myself, Either Fukuyama's right or Jesus is right, but they're not both right. I mean, Jesus says there will be wars and rumors of wars. Do not be dismayed. The end is not yet. The problem is not the economic systems. The problem at the end of the day is the human heart. But if we are required to think over a post-death eternal scale, How must that perspective change our valuations of suffering and evil in this life? Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust corrode, where thieves dig through and steal. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not corrode, where thieves do not dig through and steal. Why? Because, Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
In other words, Jesus' statement is not an exhortation to watch your heart so you'll have the right treasure. It's just the opposite. Choose the right treasure because the treasure will tug your heart. What you value most is what you will fantasize over, what you'll think about, what you'll daydream about, what you'll put money and time and energy into. And he says that our treasure, our ultimate treasure, must be in the new heaven and the new earth. That's why the apostle can say, I reckon that the sufferings of this evil world are not to be compared with the glories yet to come. It's why Jesus can insist, what shall it profit any of us if we gain the whole world and lose our own soul? In fact, even disasters such as earthquakes, the Bible can view as the beginning of sorrows, Luke 21. Often the big disasters disturb us in our generation because they challenge our desire for equanimity. That's why the tsunami that hit Japan made worldwide headlines, even though in terms of death toll, the equivalent of three tsunamis hit Africa every year in terms of AIDS, famine, and tribal strife. And we're not all that upset about those because that's status quo. I recall a number of years ago reading the little essay by C.S. Lewis, Learning in Wartime. Some of you may know it. It's everywhere on the net. You can find it very easily. Learning in wartime. You will recall, I'm sure, that Lewis himself fought in World War I in the trenches. He was uh, spared when many of his friends died. His whole unit was wiped out. He, was, he had received a minor wound and was sent back, and then the next thing that happened, his unit was wiped out. So at the beginning of World War II, a bare 20 years later, when World War II broke out, the chaplain of the university church in Oxford not knowing quite what to say, asked Lewis, who was already developing a reputation as a bit of an apologist, to speak to the students. The place was packed out that Sunday night as Lewis climbed into the pulpit. And he said, in part, A university is a society for the pursuit of learning. As students, you will be expected to make yourselves or to start making yourselves into what the Middle Ages called clerks, into philosophers, scientists, scholars, critics, historians. And at first sight, this seems to be an odd thing to do during a great war. What is the use of beginning a task which we have no so little chance of finishing? Or even if we ourselves should happen not to be interrupted by death or military service, why should we, indeed, how can we, continue to take an interest in these placid occupations when the lives of our friends and the liberties of Europe are in the balance? Is it not like fiddling while Rome burns? Now, it seems to me that we shall not be able to answer these questions until we have put them by the side of certain other questions which every Christian ought to have asked himself in peacetime. I spoke just now of fiddling while Rome burns. But to a Christian, the true tragedy of Nero must not be that he fiddled while the city was on fire, but that he fiddled on the brink of hell. You must forgive me for this crude monosyllable. I know that many wiser and better Christians than I in these days do not mention heaven and hell even in a pulpit. I know, too, that nearly all the references to this subject in the New Testament come from a single source. But then, that source is our Lord himself. People will tell you it is St. Paul, but that is untrue. These overwhelming doctrines are dominical. They are not really removable from the teaching of Christ or of his church. If we do not believe them, our presence in this church is great tomfoolery. If we do, we must mention them sometimes and overcome our spiritual prudery. The moment we do so, we can see that every Christian who comes to a university must at all times face a question compared with which the questions raised by the war are relatively unimportant. 
he must ask himself how it is right or even psychologically possible for creatures who are every moment advancing either to heaven or to hell to spend any fraction of the little time allowed them in this world on such comparative trivialities as literature or art, mathematics or biology. If human culture can stand up to that, it can stand up to anything. To admit that we can retain our interest in learning under the shadow of these eternal issues, but not under the shadow of a European war, would be to admit that our eyes are closed to the voice of reason and very wide open to the voice of our nerves and our mass emotions, and much more of the same. This second pillar, then, the accumulated insights from the end of the Bible storyline, cannot address all our questions. It is, after all, only one of six pillars. But it does orientate us to the recognition that Christians must live their lives now and make their valuations of life now in the light of eternity. The church is in the business of preparing people to die. The church is in the business of training people to await Christ's return. Some years ago, there was a woman, we'll call her Mary, who contracted cancer uh, about the time my wife did. My wife's was serious, hers was not. She was treated and judged to have escaped anything serious. Seven years later, hers came back, and it was vicious. They discovered that the thing metastasized very quickly, and uh, they put in um, a shunt so that they could put in chemicals directly into her brain because the cancer had already got to her brain. This woman was uh, influential. She was a leader in her denomination. She and her husband, for example, um, stored uh, supplies in their basement for returning missionaries. Missionaries come back and they've been serving in countries where the power is different and they don't have any toasters or irons or blankets. Who needs blankets when you're serving in an equatorial country? They, they, they pro provided all of these things for, for, for missionaries. They collected them from others. Don't give us junk. Missionaries deserve better than junk. I can hear her voice still. Um, and because she was influential in the city and in the denomination and so on, uh, when they called a prayer meeting for her, a Saturday prayer meeting, 286 people showed up. I wasn't one of them. I was away. But my wife was there. And as the time went on, hour after hour of corporate praying together, there were more and more prayers that the Lord would heal this woman. Lord, you have promised if two or three are, are gathered together and agreed, you know, we got 286 of us that are in agreement. Um, this, this, this woman really needs to live. I mean, so many operations in the church and missions depend on her and her, her efforts and so on. And it got more and more enthusiastic as the hours went by. Until finally it was my wife's turn to pray. She got up and prayed along these lines. Dear Heavenly Father, we do ask you to heal our sister Mary. But if not, teach her to die well. Give her a heritage for her husband and children. Give her an anticipation of the glory yet to be revealed. Free her from earth shackles. Make her homesick for heaven. Teach her to die well. Well, you could have cut the air with a knife because suddenly it wasn't 286, it was only 285. Some of the relatives later explained to us that uh, 
they started praying that my wife's cancer would return. That prayer meeting was in September. In November, the husband phoned me and said, Don, I got to talk to you. I got to talk to you now. I got to talk to you now. I said, well, I'll come over. No, I don't want my wife to hear this. Okay, we'll meet in a coffee shop. Do you know what he wanted? He wanted permission to let her go. The church was marvelous. They provide food. They provided meals. They provided people in the house to clean up, look after things. They, they were providing care. But if you went in and offered food and, and so on, provided things, how's it going today, Mary? Oh, I'm in a lot of pain. Don't worry. We've prayed for you. The Lord's going to fix this up. But nobody going in to say, Mary, it looks as if you're going to die. Are you ready? Do you hear the voice of Jesus saying, come home? And to even talk along, along those lines meant that you were letting down the side. All these prayers going the other way, and now you're talking about death? Where's the faith in that? No, no. This second pillar brings a different set of perspectives. Number three, insights from the place of innocent suffering. The starkest biblical treatment, of course, is the book of Job. I wish I had time to outline the major arguments I can merely drift through. In Job 1 and 2, Job doesn't know that God has a bet with Satan. God says, have you considered my servant Job? He really is faithful, you know. He's, he's a perfect man. The Hebrew word is tam. Thoroughly mature. As good as it gets. And Satan says, oh yeah, he knows what side his bread is buttered on. Take away all his wealth and his prosperity and all of that. He'll curse you to your face. So God says, go ahead. Take it all away. Bands of marauding Sabaeans come in and call Dayans and so on. And the, the cattle go and the sheep go, the herds go. And then a windstorm comes and the very place where his Ten children are having a party. The house collapses. They all die. Naked came I into this world. Naked will I go out. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not speak foolishly or charge God with evil. Oh, yeah, the devil says, but skin for skin, uh, everything a man will give for his health. Go ahead. Do your worst, but spare his life. And pretty soon he's sitting on an ash pit, scraping his scabs with broken pottery, and his wife says, curse God and die. That's the background. Job doesn't know what's at stake at the cosmic level. He's just hurting. And then three miserable comforters fly in. They do one wise thing. They shut up for the first week. And then the theology starts, the, the drama that occupies all the way to chapter 31, chapters 3 to 31. Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuhite. Some have called him the shortest man in scripture. And so far, the Naamathite. And their arguments run something along these lines. Job, do you believe that God is sovereign? Yes. Do you believe that God is good? Yes. 
So if God is sovereign and God is good and he's clobbering you, what does that say about who you are? Well, I know that God is sovereign and God is good. Man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. I, I have to say that, that I, I really don't deserve this. You, you, you know, Joe, do you hear what you're saying? That's suggesting that God is doing something that's unjust. You just said that God is good. If God is sovereign and God is good, then he's not unjust. And therefore, any judgment on you must be just. Wouldn't you say? Well, I agree that God is just. But, but I still have to say that, that what I'm suffering isn't really, you know, quite fair. I'd really like to have a chat with God. But he's hiding his face from me. So I, I can't see him. And the debate gets ratcheted up and ratcheted up until Job says conflicting things. On the one hand, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And on the other hand, I wish I had a lawyer. Well, you've gone a long way once you wish you had a lawyer to talk to God. And eventually, the three friends shut up because they can't bring him to any sort of public repentance. They, they go so far as to say, you know, maybe you have forgotten all the sins you committed, but God hasn't forgotten any of them. If you just repent of the sins that you've forgotten, the sins that you must have committed for God to bring on this judgment, repent and tell God you're sorry, then God will take away all the suffering. Job says, how can I possibly repent of something that I don't know that I've done? That, that would be a kind of lie, a kind of criticism to God. It would be a kind of way of saying, I, I must have repented, therefore I, I must have sinned, therefore I must repent in order to get some blessings out of you. That, that's so dishonest. Then he, he spends three, four chapters just defending his own integrity. And the friends are silenced. Then Elihu speaks. There are long debates about his contribution. He's a cocky young man. A lot of what he says seems to be more or less what the friends say. And yet he makes one important point. He blames the friends for not being able to answer Job effectively. In that sense, he sides with God at the end. And he blames Job for being so critical of God. Not for having sinned in the first place, but for setting himself up as if he can answer God. And that rather sets the stage for God himself to answer in chapters 38 and 39. And what God says is, uh, Job, have you ever designed a snowflake? Hmm? Were you around when I cast Orion to the heavens? How are you at designing a hippopotamus, Job? Hmm? Just over two chapters of such questions. Until at the beginning of chapter 40, Job says, I'm sorry I spoke. I'm beginning to get the point. There are a lot of things I don't understand. And God says, stand up on your feet like a man. I got two more chapters of questions to ask you. Until finally you get to chapter 42. And Job says, I repent. Now it's, important for the understanding of the entire book to grasp that Job is not repenting of some alleged prior sins that brought about this disaster. What he's repenting of, rather, is his protestations of righteousness so strongly versed that they look as if they're criticisms of God. When, by God's rhetorical questions, Job should have more quickly come to the place where he recognized there are things he doesn't understand. And his obligation is to trust God. In other words, one of the strongest lessons of the book is the limits of our knowledge. God is more interested in our trust in him, granted what we do know, 
than in providing more explanation. Not least because he knows full well we can never be omniscient. God cannot tell us everything because we cannot receive it. If we could receive it, we ourselves would be God. At least we'd have the attribute of omniscience of God. So this third pillar, pillar, the accumulated insights from reflection on Job and the challenge of innocent suffering, cannot address all our questions. It is, after all, only one of six pillars. But it does orientate us to recognizing the severe limitations of our understanding. That prepares us for the next pillar. Number four. Insights from the Mystery of Providence. Now, here I want to go one small but important step beyond the limitations of our knowledge to consideration of some of the attributes of God and how those attributes should function in our lives. I repeat, as we consider the mystery of providence, I want to consider with you some of the attributes of God and how they should function in our lives. Let me begin with two propositions. Number one, in the Bible, God is absolutely and unqualifiedly sovereign. But his sovereignty never functions to mitigate human responsibility. That's the first proposition. Second, human beings are morally responsible creatures. By morally responsible, I mean they believe and disbelieve, they obey and disobey, and so forth. And such actions are significant. They are morally significant. They are held accountable for such things. So human beings are morally significant creatures. But human responsibility expressed in such decisions, belief, unbelief, and so on, so on, so on, never makes God absolutely contingent. Now, because I've written extensively on this subject, I'm afraid I could rabbit on for several hours and not come to an end of the material. Let me direct your attention to three passages rather briefly. The first is Genesis chapter 50, verses 19 and 20. Here Joseph's brothers, after the old man has died, beg Joseph to have mercy on them because they're afraid he will now wreak his retribution upon them for having sold him into slavery. But Joseph, by way of reply, says, who am I to take the place of God? When you sold me into slavery, don't you understand? God, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. Now, what is so interesting about that way of expressing things is that the text does not say, you intended it for evil, and it happened because God was taking a walk that day or was having a little snooze and didn't pay much attention, but Mercifully, he's such a good chess player that he came back and fixed it all up with some deft moves. moves. And so as a result, um, on the chess piece of life, I, I, I came out as a prime minister of Egypt. He doesn't say that. Nor does he say, God intended it for good. He was going to send me down to Egypt in an air-conditioned chauffeur-driven limousine, but unfortunately, you guys mucked up his plan. He didn't see that one coming. But rather, in one and the same event, 
God's intentions were good and the human intentions were evil. There's no speculation about one side not paying attention or being outwitted by the other. Second passage, Isaiah chapter 10, beginning at verse 5. Here God says through the prophet, Woe to the Assyrian. Now, the Assyrians at this juncture had done a lot of damage in the north and were pressing on down now to the south, a bloodthirsty, cruel, powerful regional superpower. Woe to the Assyrian, God says, the rod of my anger. That is, God views the Assyrians as the expression of his own wrath. In whose hand is the club of my wrath? I send him against a godless nation. That is, against his own covenant people. I send the Assyrians against a wicked nation. I dispatch him against a people who anger me to seize loot and snatch plunder and to trample them down like mud in the streets. That's what God is doing through his tools. But this is not what he intends. Back to this intention thing again. This is not what he has in mind. His purpose is to destroy, to put an end to many nations. Are not my commanders all kings, he says? That that is, even his military officers are equivalent in glory and power to, to petty kings in other countries. Has not Kalno fared like Carchemish? Is not Hamat like Arpad and Samaria like Damascus, cities that he's already beaten up? As my hand sees the kingdoms of the idols, kingdoms whose images excel those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not deal with Jerusalem and her images as I dealt with Samaria and her idols? So Isaiah says, when the Lord has finished all his work against Mount Zion, notice that, his work against Mount Zion, his work in using the Assyrians to beat up Mount Zion. When when the Lord has finished all his work against Mount Zion and Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. For he says, by the strength of my hand, I have done this. And by my wisdom, because I have understanding, I removed the boundaries of nations. I plundered their treasures like a mighty one. I subdued kings. God says, does the axe raise itself above the person who swings it? Or the saw boast against the one who uses it? As if a rod were to wield the person who lifts it up or a club brandish the one who is not wood? In other words, you have a situation where God sends in the Assyrians to punish his covenant people, then he punishes the Assyrians for doing it. Because they're doing it, as far as they're concerned, in pride, in intentional cruelty, in greed. And then perhaps the most spectacular passage along these lines. There are many, many of them in scripture. But one that no Christian can possibly ignore is Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John, having faced threats, return to the church, their own people, it's called, 423, and report all that the chief priests and the elders have said. So the church bends its knee to pray. They say, Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Incidentally, it is very commonly the case across church history. That when churches face suffering and persecution, the first thing they confess in their prayers is God's sovereignty. As here. Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens, the earth, and so on. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our servant, 
of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. And then these two verses. Indeed, on the one hand, 427, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Because there was a two-bit conspiracy in a tiny little kingdom on the eastern end of the Mediterranean, a conspiracy loaded with corruption. Next verse. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. If you remove the first verse and all of its entailments and have only the second verse, then you preserve God's plan to bring about the atonement. But then where's the conspiracy? Where's the sin? If, if, if they're innocent because, because God planned it, then, then there's no sin to atone for. If you remove the second verse to preserve the first, then the reason Jesus died is, is because of this two-bit conspiracy. But that's got nothing to do with the eternal plan of God or the lamb slain from before the foundation of the earth in God's mind, or the prophetic significance of Yom Kippur, or, or of the Passover lamb, or the messianic understanding of Isaiah 53, or anything else. Now, in all of this, embedded in these scriptures is the teaching that God is unqualifiedly good. We saw that already in the first instance, didn't we? God intended it for good. You intended it for evil. This means that however we understand God's sovereignty, God stands asymmetrically behind good and evil. He stands behind good in such a way that the good is finally creditable to him. He stands behind evil in such a way that although it never escapes the boundaries of his sovereignty, the evil is always creditable only to secondary causalities. And if you think that's just a bit too convenient for God, my answer is, it's the only depiction of God we've got. God is always represented as unqualifiedly good. As James puts it, there's no shadow of darkness in him at all. Our perception that these propositions are hard to hold together is, I think, tied to the very attributes of God presented in Scripture. Let me jump a couple of steps so that you can see the point. In scripture, God is presented as utterly transcendent above space and time and utterly sovereign. He's the God who inhabits eternity. And he turns the heart of the king in any direction he wants. Dice are thrown. The lot is thrown in the lap. And which side comes up? Depends on God's choice. Not a bird falls from the, from the heavens apart from God's sanction. But the same scriptures also present God as personal. And all our understanding of personal, a very slippery word acknowledged, is that that means interacting with other persons. He asks questions. He probes. He says, Adam, where are you? And you're not supposed to infer, oh, God doesn't know. Because there are too many other passages that say in Scripture, how shall I escape from his presence? If I fly to the wings of the dawn, you're there. If I go to the depths of Sheol, you're there. You, you can't get away from God. So what is God doing when he addresses Adam and says, where are you? In fact, more broadly, how do you understand that this God, who is 
utterly transcendent and sovereign is also personal, interactive. Interacting, if you please, with finite persons like you and me in space and time. He's transcendent above space and time. We're in space and time. All of our personal relationships are, are, are bound up with, 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 with space and time categories. And now suddenly this God deigns to interact with us. Hence, the mystery of providence. There are so many things we don't understand about God. I barely understand what time is. I'm quite certain I don't understand what eternity is. Is eternity merely time stretched in both directions? Is it another dimension, another category? But God is described as the one who inhabits eternity. Now, at this point, I'm going to dare stretch my time just a little longer because I want to interact with my colleague, Dr. Thomas McCall. Now, the reason I'm doing so is because he's about to come out with a book. It's called An Invitation to Analytic Christian Theology, published by Downers, by IVP at Downers Grove this year. It's not out yet, but I managed to secure an advanced copy. On pages 56 to 61, he discusses and critiques compatibilism. Compatibilism is the word that I use to say that those two propositions I gave you, God is utterly sovereign, but his sovereignty does not mitigate human responsibility. Human beings are morally responsible creatures, but that responsibility does not make God absolutely contingent. Holding both of them together, I call compatibilism. And he discusses and critiques compatibilism on pages 56 to 61, and I seem to be the chief target of his critique. I'm sorry to say he's not here today, in one sense, it's probably a great relief for me. Probably it's a relief for you, too, because maybe our discussion would have taken up all of the discussion time, uh, and that wouldn't be quite fair to, to the rest. He's a dear brother, and he says all kinds of nice things in these pages as well, I happy, I'm happy to say. And to respond to him in an adequate way would require that I extend this lecture by an hour or two, and apart from the fact that I would thereby lose most of my audience... It would also turn this talk into an interchange between the categories of scripture and the categories of analytic philosophy. Doubtless a useful exercise, but not one for this afternoon. But perhaps I may make a couple of observations on Dr. McCall's informed and courteous critique, which you can judge for yourself uh, when the book comes out. By all means, buy it and read it for yourself. Just two. Dr. McCall charges me with using compatibilism in a way in which none of his philosopher friends use it. His philosopher friends use compatibilism to describe the belief that absolute determinism and freedom are compatible. And his philosopher friends, and McCall himself, say that compatibilism doesn't work. Compatibilism should simply be rejected. So when I defend compatibilism, and my two poles are not determinism and freedom, but God's sovereignty and human responsibility, those are my two poles, he argues that I am out of step with the world of analytical philosophy by using the word compatibilism in another way. I plead half guilty. Of course I don't use the word quite the way they do. I'm using biblical categories, not categories like determinism which he very carefully defines in categories that you can't find anywhere in Scripture. But I would say that some use the word the way I do, some philosophers, 
See, for example, Robert Young, Freedom, Responsibility, and God, 1975, in the Library of Philosophy and Religion, or Paul Helm and some others. Second, Dr. McCall's treatment, by which he dismisses compatibilism, as he defines it, that is the way the word is used amongst the philosophers, depends heavily on certain mechanistic models of determinism. If those models are assumed, I am not a determinist. Yet because of my belief based on scripture that God is utterly sovereign, I remain convinced that everything is determined in the sense that nothing but nothing but nothing escapes the bounds of God's sovereign will. But I don't like to call myself a determinist because determinist and determinism have overtones of such a mechanized definition of things that freedom really is excluded entirely. I prefer to use biblical categories. If God is the determiner as opposed to mechanistic models, the way God determines all things is shrouded in other factors, things that I don't know enough about, the relationship between time and eternity, the fact that God is personal, sovereign, and yet personal, the the fact that, that scriptures can speak of contingency. If they had done this, I would have done that. The fact that human responsibility is not so much grounded in freedom to escape the constraints of necessity, but in voluntarism, see especially Warfield. Well, so much for my excursus. I'm sure Dr. McCall will attempt to sort me out when he returns and listens to this recording. For the moment, assuming the truth of compatibilism as I have used it, what bearing does the simultaneous affirmation of both my propositions have on our meditation on suffering and evil? That's the point of the talk, after all. The most important factor is this. When you have two poles that are in some ways in tension with each other, it is important to use these twin poles, these twin propositions, as they are used in Scripture and in no other way. In other words, you don't want to infer from God's sovereignty that therefore we're not really responsible after all, because that would be drawing an inference from one pole that dismisses the other pole. Do you see? And you don't want to draw an inference from human responsibility that therefore God holds his breath and waits to see how things work out. He's not really utterly sovereign after all. So then, how is suffering viewed in the light of this polarity in Scripture? Well, suffering can be seen as a temporal discipline. Hebrews chapter 12. Suffering serves to prepare us to help others, comforting others with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted. 2 Corinthians 1. Suffering as a form of witness, seeing our good deeds and thereby glorifying God. Suffering makes us homesick for heaven. You watch people declining slowly and robust men and women who enjoy life so much here, gradually losing so many of their functions and ability and strength, until really, heaven really looks wonderful in their eyes, which is a gracious way for God to prepare them for the culture shock. Suffering to promote humility, especially for gifted people, as in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, because of the greatness of the revelations he's received, God sends him a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan, And so as a result, Paul learns that he is not to be judged by his claim to have seen visions, but only by what he sees and says and does. He is afraid that people will think more of him than he deserves. Most of us go through life afraid that people will think too little of us. 
Paul goes through life fearing that people will think too much. And he has learned that at the price of a thorn. Or, so the gold and silver of your faith will be refined, 1 Peter 1, and so many more. It is important to work through passages that talk about God's purposes in these things and see his sovereignty and our responsibility in those events, see how they work out in the attitudes that we should be adopting and forming in our mind in the light of such verities about God. So this fourth pillar, the accumulated insights from the mystery of providence, cannot address all our questions. It is, after all, only one of six pillars, but it does orientate us to reflect on the attributes of God and how we should function in our lives because of them. Five and six are the most important, perhaps, but I'm going to deal with them more briefly because they are much better known. Insights from the centrality of the incarnation and the cross. God is sovereign, yet in the person of his Son, he submits to evil to overturn evil. The Jews, according to the account in Caesarea Philippi, expected a Messiah who was powerful, a Messiah who was going to suffer and be crucified and die, rise again the third day, was simply outside their expectation. And so, as a result, the New Testament says a great deal about unjust suffering. Bearing our guilt and shame. The very guilt and shame that caused such suffering and evil in the first place. Talk about unjust. I know a family where their daughter, who's now 33, when she was only 15, lost her best friend to leukemia. The family was a Christian family. They talked about these things. There, were, there was grief. There, there, there was sorrow. There was open discussion and so on. But a few months later, the father was walking down the hall outside his daughter's room and heard her crying inside. He tapped on the door and went in. She was crying her eyes out. She threw herself into his arms and said, and just sobbed. And he said, come on, tell me about it. She said, Daddy, God could have saved my best friend, and he didn't, and I hate him. Now, what are you supposed to say under those circumstances? You wicked, wicked child. What the father said was the best he could do was, uh, I'm glad you told me. I mean, you might as well tell me. God knows your heart in any case. You're not hiding anything from him. But before you write God off, I do have a couple of questions. Number one, do you want a God who, though he's very powerful, is a bit like the genie in Aladdin's lamp. Always at the instantaneous command of whoever holds the lamp. In which case, the person who holds the lamp is really God. Do you want a God whom you can command to do what you want? Or will you turn to the God of the Bible who sometimes hides things from you and doesn't give his reasons 
who wants you to trust him anyway. And the second question is this. What are you going to do with Jesus? You lost your friend. God lost his son. In fact, he didn't lose him. He gave him. And sometimes when all of the questions seem so hard, the very best thing you can do in the entire universe is go to the cross and gaze at it and weep. You see, I know that family quite well. The daughter was my daughter. And I have her permission to tell this story. World War I was perhaps the most brutal and stupid of wars. It produced a number of remarkable poets like uh, Wilfred Owen and others. One of the minor poets was Edward Shillitaw. He didn't write many good ones, but he wrote one very remarkable one. It's called Jesus of the Scars, in which he alludes to Jesus showing up and showing his scars after the resurrection in John chapter 20. Halfway through the poem, he says, If when the doors are shut, thou drawest near, only reveal those hands, that side of thine. We know today what wounds are, never fear. Show us thy scars. We know the countersign. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to thy throne. And to our wounds only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Sometimes the best and deepest reflection in the face of evil is simply the cross from which we derive all comfort. This is a gospel-centered response to questions of suffering and evil. This fifth pillar, the accumulated insights from the cross and incarnation, cannot address all our questions. It is, after all, only one of six pillars, but it does fasten our gaze on Jesus. And finally, insights from taking up our cross, and therefore from the persecuted global church. What we must recognize is that most of what the New Testament says about suffering focuses, in fact, on persecution. Unlike most of our books today, which fasten on the pain of divorce or cancer, physical uh, poverty, uh, discouragement, uh, being fired at work, uh, some other disease, Alzheimer's, caregivers who look after people with Alzheimer's. All of which is real suffering. Don't misunderstand me. I'm, I'm, I'm not mocking any of it. All of it has to be thought about and addressed. Yet the fact remains that almost all the passages in the New Testament that talk about suffering Christians are talking about suffering because of persecution. It's bound up with what it means to take up our cross daily. The one who took up his cross in the ancient world was heading out for death, suffering. And so we have, if we suffer with him, we will reign with him. We have Jesus saying in John 16, If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. We have Paul saying to Timothy, All who live godly lives will suffer persecution. 
We have Jesus saying in Matthew chapter 5 that even if they're not suffering, you're not suffering uh, physically, if they're reviling you and saying all manner of evil against you, you're aligned with the prophets, so rejoice and be glad. We have the end of Romans 8, verses 31 and following, passages you know well. You have Philippians chapter 1, verse 29. It has been granted to you, that is, as a gracious gift. It has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on his name, but also to suffer for his sake. God's gracious gift to you is not only saving faith, but also suffering. And therefore, Paul's resolution in the third chapter of that book, chapter 3, verse 10, Oh, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Then, Acts 5.41, when the apostles are first beaten up, they rejoiced because they were counted worthy to suffer for the name. If all Christians in North America who are feeling some pushback from the world rejoiced that finally they're counted worthy to suffer for the name, it would transform our attitude towards what's going on and how we engage in Christian witness. It's so much more Christian a frame of reference than saying, they're taking away my country and I know not where they have laid it. And this is nothing compared with the suffering that is going on all over the world. See the recent book called Christianophobia and other documentation. In other words, this sixth pillar, the accumulated insights from Christian suffering, cannot address all our questions. It is only one of the six pillars, but it does return us to a New Testament focal point. I conclude with three observations quickly put. Number one, my approach in this talk is not simple proof texting. What I'm attempting is worldview formation, establishing the frame of reference, a God-centered, biblically-driven frame of reference in which to think about these matters. These six pillars taken together support a massive vision that will deeply stabilize us when the evil days come. Number two, this addresses focused on intellectual, theological, worldview issues, that is, how to think about such matters, so as to deepen our faith. But I would be the first to insist that when people are going through real crises, struggling in deep waters, coping with a tsunami, something different and more immediate may be called for. Marines to establish order, fresh water, housing, shelter, food, money, workers, reconstruction. When people are going through individual crises of illness and the like, again, so often what's required is care, comfort, a listening ear. A couple I know well, their first child was born with very, very severe spina bifida, had no eyelids. And um, in the 10 days that the baby survived, people had to put in artificial drops into the baby's eyeballs every 10 minutes or so, or else the baby's eyeballs would dry and crack. So three or four friends just set up a road, and they just took over the dropping of the artificial drops. That's what was needed, not a discourse on the sovereignty of God. Artificial eye drops. But my purpose this afternoon was prophylactic. Not exactly what to do when you face these things, but how to think, how to establish a biblical theological framework that prepares you for the evil day. And finally, this is my finally, finally. 
As far as I can see from scripture and from history, Christians who get to know God well do not, as a rule, think first of all in terms of theodicy when they suffer, but in two other categories. First, confession coupled with pleas for revival. Before you go to bed tonight, read Nehemiah 8 and 9. The people after the return are going through all kinds of suffering, all kinds of poverty, all kinds of opposition, all kinds of work, all kinds of discouragement. But instead of trying to justify the ways of God to man, as Milton puts it, they see their own patterned sin in the past, confess their sin, and plead to God for reformation and revival, that he would hear from heaven and renew them in the covenant. Second, the second common category for those who go through deep waters and who do know God well is, quite frankly, gratitude. Let me tell you about a student who used to study here. We'll call him George, not his name, but we'll call him George. It's a good name. George went out as a missionary to Bolivia. He was a strapping chap, six foot one, six foot four, tall, thin. Why God sends six foot four types to countries where the average height is about five four, not, not quite sure, but that's what God does. He learned the language well, and his mission wanted him to uh, come back and do a PhD here so that he could return to Bolivia and train people up in, in better biblical exegesis and so forth. While he was in Bolivia, he met a single woman, and the two of them got married and had a little girl. And so when they came back to start a PhD program here, uh, the little girl was about three and a half. He started in, was about six months into it, when uh, she was uh, diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. Um, They stopped the program while she was taking chemo, radical surgery, uh, all the rest, miserable time. She came through of it. Uh, with it. They had family up in the Twin Cities, and there was lots of care and support and so on, but it was still a very difficult time. He came back and pursued his PhD for another six months or nine months or so when he was diagnosed with advanced stomach cancer. The cancer hospitals in the metro Chicago area wouldn't touch him. They said it was a hopeless case. Hospice care was indicated. But the mission decided to send him up to the Mayo Clinic, They didn't give him much hope, but they said, um, there's some experimental things we could try. They took out 90% of his stomach and gave him cancer drugs that were really designed for colon cancer. He came out of it, regained his health and strength, had to eat every three or four hours because he's only got one-tenth of a stomach. Came back to Trinity, worked some more on his PhD. Then his wife's cancer returned, and she died. Eventually he came back to Trinity, finished his PhD, and then spoke in our church. I think it was before you came. Spoke in our church, and before returning with his then nine-and-a-half-year-old daughter to Bolivia, he spoke for 40 minutes on a couple of texts, and basically the burden of his message was thankfulness to God. Whether he had ever thought of these six pillars as such, I have no idea. But he had absorbed a great deal of biblical theology. I tell you, George's response 
was simply that of the normal Christian. Anything less is subnormal. Thanks for your patience.